0: Hey, Pull up a chair.
1: It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy.
0: But I think there is a fundamental difference, for example, between Vice President Mondale and myself. That is, I think we can, we can meet the basic human needs and commitments of the people of this country by restoring entrepreneurship. Ninety percent of the new jobs in this society have come from small businesses
2: and I think the, the dedication of the Democratic Party to minority people in the South and elsewhere shouldn't just be jobs. It should be the opportunity to own and operate businesses that create jobs. Glenn Can I respond yeah. to that well we'll, we'll, we'll come what's back new, to you. What's let new, some of the other What's others new out? about coming out from entrepreneurs. You know
0: well, well, when I, I a, hear when I, yeah, hear, some some specific I ways hear to do that, when but. I hear your new ideas I'm
2: reminded of that ad. Where's the beef?
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. There we go. Bingo. He shoots and he scores the great Fritz <laughs> Mondale.
2: Classic, classic debate line from the late vice president, uh, Walter Mondale, who passed away uh, yesterday at the age of 93. Really uh, one of the delightful figures, I think, is the way to say it in American politics and a very impactful one. And who better to talk to about this and all things political than our friend
0: Susan Page from USA Today.
1: I was at that debate, by the way.
0: Oh, really? Where he had the million-dollar line against uh, Gary Hart, which really is one of those rare circumstances where the debate line reshuffled the campaign and just killed momentum for Hart. It was given Mondale the race of his life in that primary back in 84. As a practitioner, you the thing you want is that one line that crystallizes everything.
2: And that's what that line did. His argument against Hart was that, you know, Hart was ephemeral, that he was not really ready to sit in the big chair, that his stuff was sort of fuzzy. Uh, And uh, this line, which uh, mimicked that Wendy's commercial about the hamburgers, where's the beef, which was very big at that time, uh, just uh, said, said it all. But uh, Susan, um, Mondale himself was, he struck me, I was carry, covering Gary Hart during that uh, election, but I always thought Mondale, in all the years that I watched him, uh, seemed like uh, the most normal person who ever, uh, you know, ventured forth in presidential politics, that he, uh, you know, he, he, he took himself, he took what he was doing seriously, but he never took himself too seriously, and for that reason, he was a delight to be around
1: yeah, I, he, he was uh, the first campaign I covered was the 80 campaign uh, where he was running for reelection as vice president. Um, and I was actually there for the debate with the where's the beef line where he delivered this perfect line. But I've got to say, I also saw him in yes. 1984 being at the receiving end of a perfect debate line when after that first debate with Ronald Reagan, he suddenly seemed to have a chance. Walter Mondale did. And Reagan delivered that. Line we will never forget, which is, I'm not going to make my I'm not, age shouldn't be a factor. I'm not going to make uh, my opponent's youth and inexperience an uh, argument against him. And with that, even Walter Mondale up on stage yes, he had he to laughed. laugh because no, it was it great. Was he smiled. Perfect. Yeah.
0: yeah. And that was the real tell of, of Mondale that he, he didn't take himself so seriously. He could laugh at that joke. And I've always, even though ideologically, you know, different planets, but I've always admired him as a human. Because one of my little tests for candidates is how they take losing. And after Mondale left, he had another great joke he'd tell, you know, other politicians and the press and everybody, which was, you know, looking back at the campaign, referencing the famous moment in the convention speech where he said, look, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to raise taxes. I just told you. He said, you know, Reagan offered him a shining city on the hill and I offered him a root canal, <laughs> which which is a pretty good summation. And it shows you know uh, a a decent person uh, with a full life well lived and one of constant service to the country he was uh, you know an army veteran served with distinction in the senate on on the left side and was a great ambassador to japan you know he carried the spirit of one of my favorite democrats hubert humphrey he was the connection to him yeah
1: definitely definitely both happy warriors
0: yep happy yep. warriors
1: from minnesota um you know his i think we remember his 84 campaign for two things one historic loss Right. The only state he carried was his own, but also for putting Geraldine Ferraro on the ticket. The first woman ever to be nominated by a national party, by a major party for national office. Who knew how long it would take to actually elect a woman as vice president? It's taken all these decades since.
2: You know, the other thing he uh, did, and I am aware of it because uh, uh, I worked in the West Wing, uh, the vice president's office. Was right down the hall from the Oval Office. He had a suite uh, right next to the Chief of Staff. That wasn't always the case. That w- that happened because Walter Mondale became Vice President and decided he didn't want to be a potted plant. We all remember, uh, you know, John Nance Garner, who was Roosevelt's first Vice President, said the Vice Presidency isn't worth a bucket of warm piss. Well, Walter Mondale stayed- changed that. No, it was piss. He, they changed. They cleaned it up. Oh, they did.
0: Okay. All right. You're sticking I'm, with the well, filthy This is version. hacks on tap. Right. I thought
2: I could give yeah. the original. All
0: right. All right. I I, I recant my piranical, uh, uh yeah, man. clean up a your scatological humor
2: here. What's going on? So anyway, the point is that Mondale became a, an integral part of that administration, and I saw a quote from Al Gore saying that the vice presidency was was never the same after uh, after Mondale. So. Uh, a lot to be there. He had the, the, the misfortune of being the quintessential uh, liberal at a time when the country was turning in the direction of Reagan. Uh, and so he got clobbered in the 1984 election, but it doesn't diminish who he was uh, as a person and as a public figure. So we, uh, we mourn the loss of a great American in Walter
0: Mondale. Meanwhile, back to Minnesota, you know, still, yeah, exactly. still the center of the universe right now. I wish I had thought of that segue. Well, that's why I jumped You're in. You're so say good. Yeah, well, you know, what? and I can tell you, it's a team of writers. <laughs> and this stuff know. doesn't come cheap.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, um, it's not, a. you know, it's it's a taught story uh, in Minnesota. And we're waiting on the, um, uh, it, by the time you hear this uh, podcast, it may be that we'll have a verdict. Uh, from the jury. If I'm sitting in the White House, Susan Page, I'm watching this very, very closely uh, because if if uh, the verdict were to come back uh, as an acquittal, um, this country is going to be uh, ripped apart. I mean, uh, either way, there are going to be reverberations, but uh, that is going to be, and I notice the president's already scheduled a a talk for whenever the verdict happens. Um, so, But they have to be thinking hard about this.
1: That's right. And kind of that consoler in chief role. Uh, and as you say, whatever the verdict is, if there's an acquittal after so millions of Americans have now watched the testimony themselves carried live uh, every day on cable television, uh, pretty compelling evidence. Is there anyone in America who hasn't seen that nine minute video uh, yeah. of the death of George Floyd? Uh, we, kn- we know there are That there's a there's a potential for real unrest if there's an acquittal. But even if there's a conviction, it's a time of of tension in our country. And it's one of those things that actually Joe Biden seems pretty attuned to deal with. I think we've seen him in handling the great losses of the pandemic, his ability to speak with with empathy uh, and making a connection, not just to Democrats, but to Americans generally.
2: Yeah, Mike. You know uh, that that is true. The question is, how much can he control uh, a situation if the situation uh, explodes? And uh, you know, I've been uh, Murphy. I, I, I've I saw some uh, transcripts from some focus groups lately, and what was striking to me is, you know, and this was a part of the the Trump project when he was running uh, during the George Floyd, uh, the aftermath of George Floyd, and he turned the attention on what was a at that point, a small group of uh, uh, of rioters, to and away from the millions of people who were marching peacefully around the country, um, and in the but in the minds of of uh, particularly these Republican voters who were Trump-oriented voters, um, that those rioters became the emblem of protest, not the millions of of people. And it actually um, it comes back as kind of a condemnation of Democrats for. In their view, coddling that kind of or encouraging uh, that kind of behavior, even though Biden did uh, condemn it. So there, there is political. I mean, I'm, it's a tragic
0: situation all around. But well Biden, I think, is the kind of grandfatherly, responsible anti-Trump to address this thing perfectly as head of state, which, as you said, he's going to do. There are elements of the Democratic Party that are a little soft on the Antifa left. And so that little crack is something that the the Trump populists and the nativists can, can exploit politically. So... These, these things are a powder keg. I I hope good justice is done, and I hope quickly. The longer the jury is out, the more tensions are going to rise about this, because that is a tell.
2: Well, and it's happening. There uh, there there continue to be examples of uh, of excessive use of force, such as the killing of that young man in Brooklyn Center, where the police officer says she mistook her taser for her gun. Right. That was all on videotape. Uh, so you know, there's a there there's lots of kindling. Hearing and lots of reason for people to be uh, uh, to to be upset, I, I uh, and, and impatient and angry and uh, but uh, then you have you know politicians. We uh, well, let's play the tape of uh, Congresswoman Waters up in Minnesota this weekend.
0: What should protesters do? Well, we've we got to stay on the street, uh, and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they, th- they know that we need business.
2: Yeah, so that didn't sit well with the judge. I mean, the defense attorney raised it as a possible objection uh, to what he may anticipate as coming, and for appeal, the judge kind of... Uh, agreed with him but in any case whatever she meant and and she now says she didn't mean that they should there should be violent confrontations but that was really unhelpful unhelpful
0: yeah, and look, she's Maxine Waters. I mean, she's always been on my list of top five Democratic members of Congress I don't like. Here in L.A., she keeps investigative reporters busy because of her extended family's political activities. She just does not need a map to find the House Ethics Committee. She's been hauled in there before, so she's frequently unhelpful. That said, I think there's some hysteria, and I'll say this as a longtime critic of hers, in the way her remarks are being covered. There's context to it. I think it's actually. I think she's done worse things, but it was, as you say, unhelpful, and uh, uh, that's not what we need right now.
1: The time and the place didn't help, right? It's not like she said it a month ago. Yeah, she said it on the verge of the jury going in for its deliberations. She didn't say it in Washington. She said it down the street. Uh, so I in think Minnesota, that has yeah. in Minnesota. So I think that uh, I think that's contributed to the concern about about, about her comments.
2: I'm just shocked that Murphy says he he is one of the she's one of the top five uh, Democrats. He, he doesn't like, because you Republicans have been feasting on her for 30 years. No,
0: she's money in the bank, and I'll bet she'll be in next month's uh, email fundraising uh, blitz. Uh, so, you know, like I always joke that the Democrats ought to rename their headquarters building in D.C., the Donald Trump Center, uh, for all the good he's done them. I think we can now have an official Maxine Walters floor at the RNC, because she just raised the Republican Party and the Trump wing of the party 50 million bucks. Hopefully things will go
2: down. There'll be a just verdict, and there'll be a, a peaceful reaction to it. And we'll see. Talking, talking about uh, peace and love. Uh, let's, Susan, talk about Washington <laughs> and uh, infrastructure and what the president is up to now. He met with a group of Republicans yesterday to talk about a potential compromise. He's got a two point what two point one two point two trillion dollar package they say too big they don't want to raise taxes for it and so on is is the are these meetings just a kabuki dance you think uh, or i mean does he want to just get caught trying or or do you think there's actual possibility
1: so you know they agree on everything except how much to spend how to pay for it, and what to spend it on. Besides <laughs> that, they are extremely close to a deal. So I, I do think, I, I think he deserves praise. I think all of them deserve praise for looking uh, for bipartisan solutions. Whether they can get to one, I think it's really unlikely. You're, you guys are both old pros in politics. What are the odds huh. that they can reach the a deal that would be acceptable to both parties to get through Congress?
0: Well, the problem is the incentives are not to get a deal because they both got inflamed bases that hate deals. Then you've got Biden. You know, Biden's running the old play that a lot of presidents run. Barack Obama was a master of this, is saying, look, I want to be bipartisan. I want to own the label of bipartisanship as long as they get 92% of what they want. And, you know, if Biden were willing to do a $1 trillion infrastructure plan that was more about capital spending— and less about all the human infrastructure they've added to this. I mean, only 115 billion of the 2.2 trillion that's been proposed is direct for highways, bridges, and you know the road stuff. Now I'm for the semiconductors. I'm for you could get I think a lot of Republicans to about eight to nine hundred billion. You could get a you could get enough I think to, to be able to pass it. But this two billion stuff where there are hundreds of billions of dollars in other programs, people helping people being lumped in as quote infrastructure, that's the Republican deal killer. And I don't think Biden will back off from that. So I'm, I'm pessimistic. I think 15% odds. I, I would say most people would agree
2: that replacing lead pipes in water, antiquated water systems across the country is infrastructure. Oh, I that's do. A yeah, I think field. the ours would Most too. people would agree that that broadband in the 21st century is infrastructure. So I mean, there there's plenty in there that they ought to be able to uh, agree on. The other thing is just how to pay for it. And uh, but you know, Susan, it's not just a matter of what those people in that room. There was a guy who wasn't in that room who probably has more to say about this than anybody. That's Mansion. Uh, and uh, you know, you, you I, we have these discussions like, well, Democrats can just push this thing through, but they only have fifty votes.
1: But, you know, one way to get Joe Manchin's vote is to look like you made a legitimate effort right. to reach something bipartisan before you decided to ram it through using reconciliation and a party line vote. And that's one of the things that I think is going on now. Not that Biden doesn't want to reach a bipartisan deal, but this is a necessary step, perhaps, to holding that those that part of the Democratic Party with him, the Joe Manchins of the world, without losing the progressive wing. You know, you go back to a bill that Mike's talking about uh of 800 billion dollars instead of 2.2 trillion and it drops some of the things Democrats care most about you think biden's going to hold the left wing of his party for that
2: right no that's that's the cliff that uh that uh biden is is walking along and i that's why i said at the beginning it does it does he is he just is he trying to get caught it caught trying i think it's important for him to get caught trying to do uh a deal i also think that um uh i also think that mansion uh, is going to he will have something. He already now, it appears that the twenty the the, the increase of uh, corporate taxes to twenty eight percent, maybe twenty five percent. That's something that Manchin has said publicly that he wants. He's going to trim some of this down, I suspect, and so you'll get a bill that is larger than the Republicans like, but probably
0: smaller than 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 Biden. Once. I think I think that's probably exactly right. And just because we all know that hacks on tap goes into a time capsule where future generations will look back for the definitive history of our times and the Republican obsession with math, the water stuff removing removing lead pipes and new water infrastructure, which I'm for, is 110 billion out of two points So it's a nickel on the dollar. I'm for it. Uh, but there's a new wrinkle. We can we can talk about the new wrinkle here, which is like all highways salt. There's a little bit more rumbling on the Democratic side about the salt, you know, tax measure, which the Republicans put in in 2017. Yeah, You're not talking about salt on the highways. You're well, I'm, about- I'm doing another very awkward transition to oh, from, I see. from small rocks of salt breaking ice to an enormous political rock that I think is going to be part of all this, which is uh, the interesting about the salt deal is I, I criticized it because I didn't like using the tax policy to punish some states. But. It's $77 billion to take it away, and that's a lot of money. And of the 40 congressional districts that get the most from the SALT tax break, which many Democrats are now arguing to bring back. Thirty-nine of them are Democratic. Fifty percent of the money goes to people who make over a million a year. So it is ironic to me that Speaker Pelosi and we can talk about that, Susan, because you just wrote a, the definitive biography. I know that's one of our topics. That's going to be a fight where I think it's going to be awkward for Democrats to defend a tax cut for millionaires, even though, of course, I'm for it yes. as a millionaire. Well, they're
1: going to defend it for. They're going to defend it for a while. I think perhaps for. I know that every listener has a PhD in politics. Uh, who you draw. To, yeah. to this podcast but very, for those, elite group. very elite yeah. but for those yeah. like me who might need some help it's state and local taxes it's the right. federal tax deduction for your state and local taxes and it's very much a blue state benefit because it's blue states that have these big local state and local taxes to pay for democratic programs they're going yes, to defend which it which is uh, why
2: donald trump took it away
1: that's that's right right no uh, that
2: was my point yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah well, Democrats, it's not, is it the hill that Democrats will die on? I'm not sure about that.
0: It's interesting. Nancy signaled she was for it, but the politics of it, I think, are are really tough. And, and, and just in fairness, I don't like it. But the, the Republican argument was, why should expensive states that often have Democratic government, because they have that philosophy, be more subsidized than Republican states? You know, you choose an expensive state government, great, but why should you get a tax break for doing that?
1: Maybe that's why uh, Donald Trump moved from New York to Florida. (laughs) Probably.
0: (laughs) All right, let's take a minute to hear from one of our esteemed sponsors.
2: You know, Mike, uh, people who have followed me on my podcast and other things that I've done know that mental health is a really big issue uh, with me, a big concern. And uh, so I'm always interested when there are things that might help you know things that will help you if you find yourself depressed things that will help you if you're dealing with anxiety things that will help you find happiness and BetterHelp offers one of those tools BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist it'll connect you in a safe and private online environment and it's it's really convenient you can start right away communicating in under 48 hours you know it's not a crisis line it's not self help it is professional counseling done securely online. All you do is send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get timely, thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule
0: weekly video or phone sessions all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Well, Better Health is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if that is what is right for you. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. The service is available for clients worldwide as well. So you can find the particular expert and expertise you need online. Don't limit yourself to the counselors located only near you. Yeah, they've got licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression and stress, anxiety, relationships,
2: sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self esteem. Anything you share will be confidential. It's convenient, it's
0: professional, it's affordable. Check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a Hacks on Tap listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp.com Hacks. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P
2: dot Hacks. You know, I meant to mention earlier when we were talking about the Chauvin case, um, the politics of guns amid all of this. You know, Susan, you talked about the tension in the country. We've had this series of mass shootings uh, and uh, at the uh, bilateral meeting with the Japanese prime minister on Friday, Biden was challenged uh, on this and asked, you know, Uh, He had promised action. He has done some modest things through executive order, which is about all he can do. And here's what, here's part of what he said.
0: And I strongly, strongly urge my Republican friends in the Congress who even refused to bring up the House-passed
2: bill, to bring it up now. This has to end. It's a national embarrassment. It is a national embarrassment what's going on. And it's not only these mass shootings that are occurring every single day. Every single day, there's a mass shooting in in the United States, if you count all those who were killed out on the streets of our cities and our rural areas. It's a national embarrassment and must come to an end. Okay. So there he is uh, sort of using the bully pulpit to exhort uh, Congress. I I watched Barack Obama do it. I watched other presidents do it. Uh, And seems to me this is a this is a problem uh, for Biden because there are certain things that he can't do. Here's the problem
1: for Biden. And here's where he displays his experience on this issue. There's no doubt he wants to pass gun laws. And there's no, no doubt. doubt that he and understands. He before, yeah. And he has before, but long time ago, 1994, yes. I think he also understands he's not going to pass gun laws here not meaningful gun laws. It's just not in the political landscape at the moment, despite all these horrific shootings. So he's stating that his belief that he wants tougher gun laws, he's talking about the horror that we all feel when we see these mass shootings, but he's not going to let it take over his agenda because he knows it is a hill too steep to climb at the moment.
2: Yeah, but he's, you know, I agree with that. And in a second, I want to ask you guys both for your hundred day evaluations of this, but Murphy, it's a bit of a vice because uh, you know whenever you elect uh, whenever you have the Congress even by a slim margin in the presidency there's all this pent-up energy so uh, voting rights which Democrats feel uh, you know uh, passionate about for obvious reasons uh, given what's going on in the states uh, gun uh, safety laws given what's happened uh, in the country and the fact that a majority of Americans a large majority favor them uh, and yet you can't get anything done and there's you know, this is this is all going to build up into the whole filibuster debate and everything else. But you know, I agree with Susan. He's 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 artfully keeping the focus on those things that he thinks he ultimately is going to be judged on, and that he can get done: the virus, the economy. You know, but uh, but you know, this is a this this one
0: is it doesn't seem very promising. No, look, Biden is wise about it, because having been in D.C. for a couple hundred years, he he knows the reality. Uh, He's an old pro, and he knows that gun politics are really hard. The Democrats want a lot. Some Republicans want a little. Background checks is very popular, even with Republican voters. Gun show loopholes popular, but it is hard to focus the fight on that narrow stuff, because the partisans on the Dem side will be like, no, let's play the big winning hand, win seats, and then do what we want. And the partisans on the Republican side said, we can't screw with our NRA base voters. If the country really wants gun control to eventually get it, but it's one of these divisive dug-in issues where there are a few things that are overwhelming. That's why I support background checks and gun show loophole. But the primary politics put an edge on it that makes it really, really tough. Um, And Biden knows all this.
2: You know, everything gets thrown into this cultural filter now, and this is a big, big cultural issue. I disagree with you on one thing, though. I think Democrats would take just about anything at this point. I mean, I I do think Democrats, you know, uh, Toomey and Manchin had a modest proposal to extend background checks
0: to all commercial sales. And uh, I think Democrats would welcome that. If I were Schumer, by the way, I'd try to move that. If I win, great. If not, I have a wonderful wedge issue because I've got a very sharp blade. You know, I did the Bloomberg Independent Expenditure to help reelect Toomey. And we ran it on basically mentioned Toomey in the Philly suburbs, spent a bunch of money. And the Toomey campaign told us afterwards that is what saved us in a tough state. It is a potent voter weapon if you narrow the framing enough.
2: Right, especially in, the suburban, uh, in suburban areas that are still going to be uh, Battlegrounds, yeah. um, uh, you know, Susan. What you said was, um, I, I so agree with you, uh, both you guys, uh, about uh, you know Biden. There is, va- you know, in another time in another place, fifty years of experience maybe a few years too much for a guy running for president. Turns out that after Donald Trump in this troubled time with the virus and everything coming at us, that having kind of a, the the you know Yoda. Uh, there in the White House, the wise old hand, uh, is good. And as we look back, we're going to mark the hundred day anniversary of his uh, inauguration. Um, you know, he, he's got the, those accomplishments passing his, uh, his relief act, uh, at the beginning, 1.9 trillion trillion. Uh, the checks are flowing. Vaccines are flowing. Uh, and that is uh, on the big issues. He's 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 putting points on the board. But uh, this deftly navigating the rocky shoals of Washington, it seems to me, is another big plus for him in these first hundred days. He's been pretty good at
1: it. Yeah, he's been quite sure footed. There's not been a big learning curve for him. Uh, we've seen him keep his focus on the things he thinks will be judged on controlling the pandemic, getting the economy roaring again. On Afghanistan, too, I think that's a decision not uh, without controversy, but one that reflects the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, by September 11th uh, is one that reflects his long-held views now in a position to implement. I I was there.
2: I was there. there. I was there for the AFPAC review in, uh, in 2009, and he was He was very tough in those meetings with the military about what our objectives were. And he argued very strongly that we should narrow the mission to counterterrorism and uh, and and not try and remake Afghanistan because that was not going to happen.
1: And, you know, a president with no experience in those rooms talking to those generals, I think, would not have been confident enough to make that call this early in his presidency. I I do think the one place where he has had a misstep is dealing with the issue of immigration and the border. And it's perplexing because it's not like it should be a big surprise that there was going to be a surge of migrants across the border once Donald Trump was out of office. I, I don't understand why they haven't been better prepared for that.
2: Yeah, the argument, Murphy, was that the lack of a transition made it
0: more difficult. But I, I agree with Susan, you know, that that is a. Well, they should have seen that coming. It was most obvious thing in the world. And it, it has been a bungle, but they're trying to recover. Now, on grades, what do you give them? I want to start with the East German judge here, Axe. What? uh what, what are you thinking? I, I'm going to give them two grades, a grade for Trump, never Trump Republicans from that point of view, and an overall grade, like those old report cards we used to get with like citizenship, you know, 12 different things. But what, what's your top line grade? Because I like the grade analogy.
2: You know, uh, because of the immigration issue, I would say I would give him an A minus, uh, especially you have to judge him against the, the, you know, to, to just continue your analogy, the difficulty of the of the assignment Um, You know, in some ways it's easy because you're following Donald Trump. And just by being a decent, empathetic human being, you get a lot of points. On the other hand, you are in the middle of a pandemic. You are in the middle of economic dislocations as a result of it. Uh, You are in a Washington that's completely riven. uh, And uh, he has navigated that well. So I I think uh, I'd give him an A-minus which is, by the way, higher grade than I ever got. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> You know, I would give him a B, I think, on policy because the immigration thing is costing him. It's going to cost him for some time until he deals with it in a more effective way. But I would give him an A on tone, on sort of calming things down in Washington and projecting a different tone from mm-hmm. the White House and letting us all have like a whole day where we don't worry about the future of the country quite so much as we did for four years.
0: You guys didn't tell me I could give two grades. <laughs> I'm going to give 3. We're going to have great inflation here with the note that, you know, in the first 100 days, you do got a grave on the curve a little bit because it's the easiest test. You have momentum, people want you to succeed, you know, it 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 is um it is not the hardest time. But that said, on being a good democratic zookeeper of that world and on tone compared to Trump being a head of state that understands the job, and on rule of law, I give him an A. I'm going to give him a higher grade than X. I think he has been perfect, tone on, politically deft. Uh, and and I give him big benefits for the COVID turnaround. Um, you know, so yeah, that's an A. On never Trump Republican sliver of voters, I give him a C almost a C-, minus, simply because this fiscal stuff is going to hurt them with that suburban group. Now, I know the theory, and it might be true, they're making the bet they're going to get such a magnificent economic comeback that all be forgiven and they'll break the midterm curse. And that could happen. It's not a crazy bet. But this kind of spending... Uh, is a resonant issue in that world, even though the Republicans have been hypocrites about it. I, I totally get that. And if we have a little width of inflation and everything, the midterms are going to be ugly. So I, I give them about a C, a C on that. And on foreign policy, C+. Plus back to normalcy, but some bungles, including, in my view, Afghanistan. There's a reason you guys didn't agree with them, you know, back in the Obama administration when he made that case for withdrawal. And I don't like the Russia response, way too weak for all the thunder. So I have to cut him. I was hoping to be, give him a B plus, but C+. Plus.
2: The reason that Obama ultimately, they, he went with a scaled-down version of what the Pentagon wanted in exchange for and understanding that this was going to be phased out over time, and uh, he saw that as a uh, as a glide path to that. So you know that's where that that's where he landed. It wasn't like he had he uh, you know he he. Empowered Biden to make the arguments that Biden was making. He wanted sure. to
0: hear that debate. Yeah, that's a good thing. But you know, it didn't carry the day then anyway.
2: You know one mentioned China. I mean, the world is a complicated place. He he walked into a very complicated situation. I think that the four years of withdrawal from the world uh, stage has had uh, uh, you know has made all these things worse. But um, I, I would you know I think it's too early to give a grade on foreign policy, uh, other than to say that he is trying to reestablish uh, uh, alliances, and we'll, we'll, we'll see where that leads. But all in all, more you know, there's a sure-footedness to, um, to most of what they're doing. I give a lot of credit to Ron Klain, his chief of staff, who probably is the strongest just in terms of the authority that he has, uh, chief of staff, and certainly one of the most experienced that we've had uh, in a long time, I, I think he's doing fine. This is uh, he's also experienced enough to know that uh, doing fine today doesn't guarantee doing fine tomorrow.
0: Yeah, and the whole hundred day thing—you, you have a, a fair point about foreign policy needs time. But hundred day, you've got a little little tailwind you don't have at day three hundred.
2: I will say, uh, as part of your middle discussion, and you tried to inoculate against it. Yeah, Republicans are going to have a little bit of a hard time running on the fiscal austerity and responsibility platform
0: after their drunken
2: uh, partying (laughs) uh, over at Mar-a-Lago for
0: four years. You know, I think that may not be true. I mean, you're right. The Democrats, I think, would love to say, oh, look at what a hypocrite they all are. But, you know, Nancy has already reversed her position on Afghanistan, and she'll make the argument, the old Adelaide Stevens line, when the conditions change, so does my opinion. Well, the conditions are changing with $4 trillion, so it's cynical, but I think they're going to be able to mount an offense on this. Yeah, we'll um, see. You know, we're seeing it's going to be a test.
1: I don't think hypocrisy is a charge that ever prevents a politician from articulating right. whatever is convenient at the yeah, moment. Why do we the job. You call Republicans hypocrites? They'll still uh, accuse the Biden administration and Democrats as pulling too much.
2: I'm just saying that it'll be an interesting debate, and and Biden will say, "Yeah, this is what I spent the money on. Here's what you spent the money on, and it was all good with you when the money was going to the wealthy and to." corporate bonuses and all of that stuff then it was fine but when we try and help working people then we have to be fiscally responsible well you know the responsible thing is to get everybody going again in this country and that's what we're trying to do you know I don't know that he's going to get beaten on the unless the economy takes a turn south and that you know if Larry summers for example is right and there's a uh there there's high interest rates and inflation coming into the midterms
0: that's going to be a problem. Let's take a minute to do an ad and we'll be right back. We all shop online. I'm addicted to it. My wife wants to open what she calls a loading dock for all the boxes <laughs> that show up. But you know, every time I shop, and I'll bet it's the same for you, You, when you're checking out, there's that little box promo code. Right. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I Nobody gave me a promo code. I haven't been yes. invited to the Oscars. I'm not in the club. Where's my code? But guess
2: what, my friend? There is an answer now, and it's called Honey. Your days of manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is a free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. Honey supports over 30,000 stores online, so that probably covers you and your wife and family. They range from sites that have tech and gaming products to popular fashion brands,
0: even food delivery, my friend. <laughs> well, they they got me with that. Now, imagine, Ax, you're shopping at one of your favorite sites, and when you check out, the Honey button drops down, and all you got to do is click Apply Coupons. Within a few seconds, Honey searches for coupons it can find for that site. And if it finds a working coupon, bingo. Right in front of you, you will watch the prices drop. These days,
2: we've all gotten accustomed to doing more ordering online because of the virus and the situation that imposed... On us. So there's plenty of opportunity to use honey and save a lot of dough, which is always good.
0: It's tremendous, which is why honey has found over 17 million members, over $2 billion in total savings.
2: Okay. So if you don't already have honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and important to us supporting this podcast
0: we don't recommend stuff we don't dig so get honey for free at joinhoney.com slash hacks
2: that's joinhoney.com slash hacks murphy i stepped on your segue because you you once again introduced pelosi I'm trying to save you here, David. I'm trying to get on. There's a new book. You about it?
0: I know. know. I'm sorry. No, let's talk about it. Susan, tell us about the book and what sparked your interest because you got incredible access to really do it. You know, I thought
1: Nancy Pelosi was someone who had made a huge difference, a huge impact, been a huge practitioner of power and had not gotten much credit for it, had not gotten the credit she deserved, had not gotten the credit, a man in that job might have gotten. And uh, she had a story that had not had not really been told in, in part because she's very disciplined. She's pretty guarded. Uh, but I thought there was a story there to tell about how one gathers power, holds power and what one uses power for.
2: Yeah, well, she I mean, I couldn't agree with you more having been there. Uh, I mean, she carried so much water for uh, the for President Obama. Uh, And it was what was so striking was just how how much she understood her institution and which which buttons to push when what was important to every member. Uh, I mean, she completely understood when when the when uh, when the Senate was lost after Ted Kennedy died and it looked like the Affordable Care Act was dead. And I know you spoke with her about this. uh, We were 20 votes short in the House to pass the affordable care act and we went underground and basically she said let me work this uh, and one by one by one she cut the deals that were necessary to get that law passed there wouldn't have been an affordable care act without nancy pelosi she is to me a deft combination the deftest combination of 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 sort of Pile to the nth degree plus uh, someone who really cares about the end result. I mean, I I think she cared deeply about passing that bill, and it wasn't just a political matter for her. She's in it for a reason, and uh, I really admire her.
1: Well, you know, she is, uh, Republicans characterize her as a kind of a hardline liberal and ide- rigid ideologue, and she definitely has an ideology. She has the I- ideology she learned from her father who was a big new deal democrat yeah. a friend of fdr when he was when uh, when nancy's father was mayor of uh, baltimore but she's also a paul uh she's someone who understands you sometimes take half a loaf because that's as much as you can get and with the affordable care act she supported a different bill the house bill but yes. when it became necessary to push the senate bill that she saw as one with big flaws. When that was the only option, she pushed it through with a combination of what our friend John Bresnahan said in in Politico a couple of years ago was a, a, an iron fist in a Gucci glove.
0: Yes. I am soft on machine politicians. My grandfather was one back in Detroit. But the truth of Nancy is, and of course, ideologically, she is a liberal, so I almost, almost always disagree with her. But she is an old school Paul of, of that. She's one of the last of them. And she is incredibly ruthless. I mean, we, we let's make that a compliment now. You know, without the big gender lens and how, de- it, like, I loved her line about AOC, which is a glass of water could win that district which is true, by the way. But if Kevin McCarthy had said that, you know, he'd be under arrest right now by the woke stoppo. So I like the fact she's a bare-knuckled Paul. In Boehner's new book, which is also excellent and I highly recommend, he opens talking about her and how she just gutted John Dingell. Uh, and he said, I don't think I'm as tough as her. I don't think I could have done that to the old warrior. So, you know, she she is a throwback to the kind of tough, feared, take no prisoners, political leader that you really kind of need in the modern house to hold the thing together. So I think that ought to be celebrated, not covered up as some sort of sexist attack. She's a killer. She yeah. is yeah. She's, she's junkyard dog.
1: As Steve, as Steve Brand- Bannon said after the first white house meeting with congressional leadership and president Trump, Steve Bannon said, she's an assassin.
0: Yes.
2: Yeah. But an assassin for, uh, you know, on a mission.
0: Yes. She doesn't do it for fun. Well, I I think she may enjoy it a little, but you're right. She's a committed progressive, just like Mitch, another assassin, is a committed conservative. They're more alike than people want to admit.
2: If you cross her, she has a very, very long memory.
1: Dave, uh, David. Uh, I've got it. I've seen a picture of her standing in the Oval Office with Barack Obama, jabbing her right hand at him, the finger at him, and he has reached up and held on to her hand. It's not clear if he's trying to calm her down or protect himself. What was their relationship like since you saw it from the inside?
2: he really appreciated her for all the reasons that we're saying right now. I mean, she was someone who could get things done, but, you know, she would get in his grill and anybody's grill. I I walked into a uh, caucus once they used to send me down there as a ritual sacrifice, whenever the the caucus was unhappy with the white house. And I went in there because we were trying to get them to pass, you know, the climate change bill in 2009, which was ultimately we were asking them to walk the plank because Harry Reid was never going to take it up in the Senate. You know, there were guys in the White House who thought we could get the Senate to do it. We couldn't. But I walked into this caucus and Pelosi was on me as soon as I arrived. And she's jabbing her finger in my chest saying, your guy told me he was going to be out there campaigning for this if we took it up. I haven't seen him out there. And she's just letting me have it. And then there's an invocation. And all of a sudden, she stops. She she uh, clasps her hands. And as the, uh, as, as the uh, minister finished, she crossed herself. And literally, in one motion, she's jabbing me in the chest again, saying, and if he's not out there, I'm going to pull this bill. And, you know, it was, that was her. And she was fearless. I mean, you know, but I think he, Obama, appreciated uh, what a warrior she was, and that she could produce, you know, she could cut it. Um, I mean, he'd be the first to say about the Affordable Care Act and many other things that, um, you know, that, that they wouldn't have happened without her. There were certain things on which um, they, they disagreed, but, you know, uh, but uh, generally, because she was pragmatic and effective uh, and was exactly what you guys described, you know, she's someone who will take half a loaf. That was Obama's philosophy. Let's get as much as we can get. And frankly, we need more of that.
1: When I interviewed Hillary Clinton for the book, she said that after the Affordable Care Act passed, she called President Obama to congratulate him. And Obama said to her, the person you should be calling is Nancy Pelosi.
0: Yes. There's a great anecdote about tearing up the speech, which is famous from the State of the Union, but there's a twist to it. Susan, you want to... You want to tell us this? We're stealing some of the good stuff from your book.
1: So um, I asked Pelosi what happened. I mean, I, frankly, I'd never seen that happen. Something like that happened before. Such disrespect between the leaders of, right. to, of our branches of government. She said that she was up there. He, he gave her a text of the speech. As you know, that's a tradition. The president comes up there and presents a text of the speech to the speaker. She was speed reading it. She saw something she thought was wrong untrue. And she wanted to make a note of it so that she could get back to it. And she starts looking around for a pen. And she doesn't have a pen. Uh, There's a little drawer there. She opens the drawer. There's nothing in the drawer. So she makes a tiny tear in the margin of the paper of the speech text so she can find it again. And then she finds another thing she thinks is wrong. And then another thing she thinks is untrue. And then another thing she thinks is a lie. And by the end of the speech, the whole speech has these little marks, these little tears on the corner. And she she said she decided. If he's going to shred the truth, I'll shred his speech. And stood up and tore it four times into pieces and tossed them on the on the desk. Meanwhile, Mike Pence is standing next to her, pretending not to realize what she's doing. <laughs> you
0: know, I'm surprised she just didn't use her laser vision to set it on fire. But yes, that uh, I believe it because that's kind of how Pauls are.
2: I think if you were to bet today, you'd bet the Republicans will take the House in 2023, just based on redistricting and the tendency of uh, the party in power to lose seats uh, in an election year. Do you think Pelosi will be here in 2022? Do you think she will she will guide this ship through the midterms?
1: No, I think this is her last term. I don't know that for sure. There's not a guarantee, but she's indicated that this is her valedictory. Um and I think that the Demo- Democrats in the House are, are really ready to move on to a new generation of leadership, although there is huge respect for her. Can I just say one thing about the assumption, though, that, that Democrats are going to lose the House in the first yeah. midterm? Certainly history says they will, but two things a booming economy would help. Yes, but yes. number two, Democrats did not score any gains in the presidential year. And traditionally that's one of the problems they have in the first midterm is that they lose some of those weak members who got swept right. in with the tide. There's nobody got who got swept in on the Biden tide in the house.
0: Right? No, that's right. No, I, and I said, no, it, it's a jump ball. I mean, it, it, his history says one thing, big economic recovery could say another and there are fewer swing seats now, but redistricting is a tailwind for the R's, no doubt about it. But who's next? Let me ask you the horse race question. If she does exit stage, right. Who does she hand off the thrill of losing and going in the minority to?
1: You may portray it as not a good job. There are no shortage of people who would like to hold it. You know, I don't really think it's hers to hand off, as you know. Right, right. It's going to be the 220 Democrats. Secret ballot, which makes it its own dynamic. But a couple of the we know Hakeem Jeffries uh, of New York is interested in it. Karen Bass of California, a former speaker of the California House, I think another possibility. Um, you know, Adam Schiff, I think would like the job, but maybe not quite fit for the the moment. I think there's a lot of energy behind the idea of having the first person of color as Speaker of the House. Who would you put your money on?
2: Hakeem? Yeah, I, I would think so. You know, Karen Bass but she's she's very very deft and there may be the the idea of a replacing a woman with a man may uh, redound to her benefit but jeffries has been you know lining this thing up for quite a while um so i don't know actually i'm calling that a jump ball that's going to be an interesting fight i'm hoping for josh
0: gottheimer but the book you say is a long shot. <laughs>
2: the question i the question susan and i was asking really was um not just whether she would be here in 2023 but do you think she will be here through this term or might she take an appointment from Biden to an ambassadorship or someone suggested to me that that might be the case? And then, have you know, there there's been this interesting relationship with Steny Hoyer over all these years. So it, it would be kind of a delicious twist if she if she left at some point and gave him his dream to be Speaker
0: of the House for eight months leading into into the midterm it would be cruel enough to fit the pattern
1: you know uh i am unencumbered by information about this so let me answer anyway just like us so go ahead thats
0: <laughs> so you're in the right place my friend I think, I think that
1: uh i think that once you get through this early passage of, of legisl- big legislation uh for joe biden and enter the full-fledged campaign season that it is entirely sensible that she would become the ambassador to the vatican or maybe Italy, places with whom mm-hmm. Italy, a place where her, gran- her uh, grandparents came from. Uh, I think that's entirely possible. And in fact, I might, you know, she was thinking about retiring, making plans to retire in 2016 until Donald Trump was elected. And I think at that point, she might have done the same thing with an appointment from a President Hillary Clinton.
2: Interesting. Well, that'll be fun to watch. Yeah, Hoyer could be, you know, be a speaker,
0: temporary speaker for a cup of coffee and a rough midterm.
2: You well, know. it would
0: be the Shakespearean end after their rivalry. Here you go. You get to handle the minefield. I'll be in Italy with the Pope. <laughs> uh, it would be a very Pelosi-esque power move in the great style and tradition. But anyway, the book by Susan Page is called, I believe, Madam Speaker by our friend Susan Page is, I think, out now on all your normal book channels. So check it out if you want to read a really well-done biography of a really tough Paul of the old school.
1: Hey, thank you, Mike.
2: And let's just say not just a tough pile of the old school, but one of the historic figures in the history of this country. Uh, and uh, I think we don't we don't recognize that in the moment. Uh, but we will look back and she will be there with Sam Rayburn and others, uh, other figures in our history as a, a kind of uh, a standalone uh of her of her generation let's quickly do the mailbag and ask susan one question let her go because she's got to go Susan, you can see we're a very contemporary operation here.
0: (laughs) Okay, if you have a question for the hack, send it to us by email at hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or post a comment. And feel free to share it with your friends. That really helps us out.
2: Susan, Joe asks, I'm hoping Washington insiders like yourselves can help me decipher what Joe Manchin is up to with his complete and unequivocal defense of the filibuster even if he were against eliminating the filibuster, wouldn't it make more strategic sense to at least leave that option open to potentially bring Republicans to the table?
1: So first of all, thank you, Joe, for the question. Uh, Maybe this is what Joe Manchin actually believes, that the filibuster serves a purpose. That's not to say that he could not be persuaded against the filibuster if events unroll in a way that makes that seem wise.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, again, I think Manchin we talked earlier about Biden wanting to be get get caught trying. Uh, I think Manchin uh, probably does as well. He has to look like he's making a good faith effort. But I will say this, and I think we have talked about this before, Murphy. I, I really, really question whether Joe Manchin's ever going to run for office again. Uh, 2024 will be a presidential year in West Virginia. It's easier to win. If you don't have a president of your own party on the ticket, you know oh, it's very totally, hard to yeah. defy that tide. I, I think he may be thinking, you know, I got four years here, and I'm going to do whatever the hell I think is right, and uh, I'll I'll court hell from the left from time to time, and maybe piss off a few voters in my state from time to time. It uh, I'm okay with that.
0: Oh, I think totally. Look, I I'm far from convinced he's going to run again for those reasons, and and on the filibuster. You know, the thing, Manchin, every time the word filibuster has come up in the last 20 years, Manchin says, no, he didn't do it for the judges when almost all the Dems did. He's always been the guy who's thought the filibuster forces a larger consensus. That's what he just wrote an op-ed about. It's what he believes and it's what he's going to do. It's just not going to change. He's a leopard who's not going to lose his spots on that issue. Susan, we're going to let you go.
1: Hey, thank you both. This is so much fun. I really appreciate it. And it's so I feel smarter having heard you talk.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, good to see you too. And congrats on the book. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. Okay. I think it's fair to say at this point—this is from James—that the standard Democratic base voter sees passing some version of H.R. 1 into law as a non-negotiable necessity, and H.R. 1 being the—you can explain it, but the response to the Georgia voter bill— and that Republican efforts at the state level around voting, gerrymandering included, are existential threats to both the party's viability and to, drumroll please, democracy itself. In your view, is this sentiment shared by the institutional Democratic Party and its establishment leaders?
2: Look, I think there's a recognition that the 200 and something bills around the country that are being introduced that are similar in, uh, in language and approach, uh, so they're kind of a centralized operation by Republicans and legislatures on voting are not designed to help the Democratic Party or expand voting participation. These are a reaction to the fictional idea that somehow the last election uh, was fraudulent. And, uh, you know, I think, leaders of the party establishment and insurgent leaders recognize that. Um, the question is, what can you get done? H.R. 1 is a very expansive bill that deals with some of these issues, as well as lobbying issues and, uh, you know, political uh, and governmental reform issues. There's also a John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act. That's a narrow uh, bill that is a narrower bill to, to shore up the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, I, I think Democrats would like to pass both those bills. They're faced with the same uh, problem that they, they have generally been faced with here, which is the filibuster. And the question is whether they have a carve out. Uh, and somehow, um, as, as with judges, they say when on issues that, that deal with voting, we can, uh, you know, we can we, we will forego the, the filibuster. I think that's a possibility uh, when the time comes. But let me just say one thing. I also, you know, I, I had uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms uh, on my Axe File show a few weeks ago. And what she said was, these are, these are, this is an awful bill. These, these uh, Georgia changes are, are unhelpful. They're, they're, they're born of bad intent and so on. But don't believe that people aren't watching and aren't going to be encouraged to do whatever they need to do to vote. And that this will be an incentive to that and and so i do think that these i do think these are offensive to a democracy we should want everybody who's qualified to vote as a, as a citizen to vote uh, and we should make it easier to do it not harder to do it uh that said i don't think that um the that these bills are going to deter people who are um committed to doing what they to playing their role in our democracy and we'll see in georgia in 2022. But, um, you know, I, uh, I do think people recognize the seriousness of it and that it's a big challenge.
0: I'll just quickly say I've been a big critic of the Georgia bill. I don't like the Michigan or Texas bill either, but H.R. 1 is terrible, overreach bad, a narrow bill is the way to go. And I don't think, I think H.R. 1 is pretty much dead on arrival in the Senate, so it will not solve the problem.
2: Murphy Beckett, And I'm glad to see we're expanding our demo here. I'm a (laughs) 12-year-old political buff, and I love your podcast. Jesus makes me think about how we, there are certain times when we should pray. Anyway, I frequently heard Mike Murphy talk about the great days of Ronald Reagan. I know, man, he never shuts up about this. I'm personally pretty liberal. Hello to Comrade Axelrod. You see, you're picking up on Murphy's habits here. And I want to know, how do you feel, what do you feel was Reagan's legacy uh, when it comes to the current state of politics.
0: Beckett, you are a wise young man, and we moved this question from last week so the comrade could be here for part of the uh, answer. <laughs> I, um, uh, you know who a, a Reagan admirer was, and David can probably address this, at least in style and tone, was Barack Obama. Yes. So I think Reagan, I, I'll give President Bush some credit to President George W. Bush, but Reagan had a unifying idea Politics not about group versus group, which I think is a bit of a poison in our politics today. But a unifying idea, that shining city on the hill, he was an optimist, he believed in America, believed in upward mobility, believed in freedom, and he sold it with an unwavering positivity. He was not a grievance politician. The only thing he got mad at were some ideas of the left, which was passion. So he set a presidential tone that we miss, unified the country, and it made him incredibly politically successful as a center-right president, and that's exactly what we need to get again.
2: Well, let me, let me just say I admired uh, Reagan's uh, political skills, leadership skills, um, and uh, yeah, his sunny disposition. Uh, what a contrast with what we just saw the past four years. But having said that, um, you know, he basically uh, set the country on a course uh, of uh, sort of self-destruction relative to government. Um, the, his notion was that if we just uh, or at least as his supporters interpreted, if we just do away with the government, all will be well. Uh, I think that has something that is a philosophy that has governed the Republican Party for the last uh, 40 years. And it has uh, morphed into something uh, really destructive. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I think that's part of Reagan's legacy, too. Uh, so, uh, you know, I can't be an unalloyed. I think if President Obama were here, by the way, Mike, he'd say that as well. He admired him for uh, his disposition as president, uh, and he also admired him for uh, the skill with which he pursued his goals. Uh, but I don't think he agreed with uh, the, uh, the governing philosophy, which was basically uh, to go after government.
0: Well, they disagreed, as it should have
2: been. Um,
0: I'm with Reagan. I don't have a last call. I have a last
2: prayer, which is that, getting back to what we were discussing at the beginning, that when this verdict comes down, that it's a just verdict, and that this country receives it uh, in a way that is uh, sober and and, and appropriate, and that we can move forward as an American community and confront these issues uh, in a peaceful way.
0: Amen. I agree with you on that, pal. Okay. Well, great to talk to you. All right, brother. uh, See you next time. Thank you for listening. Why is the
2: beef...